This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Rusland, today we have the returns of, they are both um, BFM people. He is a producer on the morning run, and he is Mikey Gong. Hi, Cam. Good to see you again. Great to see you. And she is a producer at uh, BFM, and she is Julian Yap. Hello. Great to see you both. I don't want to have favorites, but, you know, you two, don't tell the others. I mean, I love, I love you all equally, okay? Let's just leave it at that. It's on air now. Oh, <laughs> you too, Ken. <laughs> so our, our three topics this week are, topic number one is, were the good old days as good as all that? Topic number two is the Colombian exchange or how foods moved around the world. And finally, topic number three is learning history through the movies. So, uh, Mikey, were the good old days as good as all that? I think that it's, and it's a matter and context. I mean, I don't think anyone's having a great time at the moment. So it's natural to go back and go, oh, those were, and those, and those days were the good old days and things where things were really idyllic, um, you know, and, uh, you know, and everything worked. But I want to question that narrative and actually ask you, were they really that good after all? Or is it just a function of age? I've got a few theories about that. Ken, I don't know whether you agree with me and no, uh, no, you no. too, uh, Julian. Uh, and it's great having a young person here because uh, and it won't be two old people going back in time and talking about the good old days. Yeah, well, I, mean, um, I, I am young, so yes, uh, thank you. Oh, yeah, of course you are. Yeah. <laughs> I have to think that it's actually a function of youth. Uh, the good old days, and was a time when we were all strong, young, much younger, and had hair, and more vigor. So, of course, things looked a little bit brighter. So um, even if they really weren't, you kind of put on some rose-tinted glasses and saw it as that. Um, but I want to ask, does it really stand up to objective facts and scrutiny? I mean, let's take a look back then and, and ask about whether it really was all that cracked out to be. Um, do you remember uh, uh, a material called asbestos? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, right. Okay. Do you know, it was touted as the wonder material of the, of the 60s and 70s, you know, that was going to revolutionize our lives. Well, it certainly did, and not in really good ways either. Kev, uh, you probably remember this. We talked about the good old days when, you could, when where petrol was cheap and you could drive. Um, harken back to the time when we had lead and petrol. Yeah. Do you remember visiting a dentist in the 70s? No. <laughs> yep. Julian, are you then uh, does going to a dentist scare you these days? Well, I think whatever age, whenever you're like that's an awful experience. Sitting in that chair is gonna be terrible wherever you are, however old you are, right? Well, I can tell you that going to the dentist in the 70s was far worse. We're talking about <laughs> the pain threshold. These days I don't have a fear of going to the dentist because it's for most part less painful. And I think mm. it also made great strides and you know in uh, in medicine as well i mean um, cancer survival rates have doubled since the 1970s mm-hmm. for example um i have a bit of a stat here 45 percent of cancer patients are expected to survive at least 10 years and that's versus 24 percent in the 1970s so mm. in a sense things have improved even if we don't actually see that way yeah well i do remember from the 70s being absolutely pumped full of uh, antibiotics 
You, if you went to the doctor for anything, they would they would hand out antibiotics like Tic Tacs. Um, <laughs> and so I really try to stay away from them now because I'm sure I've like, you know, I'm just immune to them. Do you pick up the 70s very specifically just because, I mean, you, you haven't mentioned the 80s or the 90s or even the early 2000s. Is that, do you pick that specifically because that's a specific time because there were so many changes then? That's a great question. I see the 80s as a transition decade. That's when uh, the power of computing actually increased in terms of processing power. So I, one day I want to argue this on a bit of culture that it was responsible for driving a lot more innovations in goods and services. So I picked on the 70s because that was the, um, the pre-computing age, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, but Mikey, can I stop you there for a second? The thing is that you and okay. I are exact, exactly the same age. So actually the 80s were a transition decade insofar as you and I were transitioning through puberty. Um, <laughs> so you know, the, yeah. the 70s were childhood. And I, I, I mean, you're, you're quite, quite directly calling the 70s those days, back in the day. Uh, ah. for, for Julian, do you have, you're, you're very young, do you have mm. a back in the days? Well, yeah, yeah. And, but I think it's, it's the same thing. It's the same tra transitionary period where I was born at the, I, 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 so I'm technically a millennial. I was born in 95. So I was uh, coming, I was, I was growing up when we were trying, we were moving out of dial-up and I got, you know, um, the really terrible um, MP, I, no, they weren't terrible. They were great. We got the MP3s. I had the Nokia. I had all of them. I had the mm. first or the second iPhone or the second iPod, you know, I had the good old days of then. I think, um, uh, like like Mikey said, you know, I had the rose tinted glasses. I was also a child, but also so much happened then. Um, you know, opening up the world to you know nine eleven, SARS here, um, the tsunami. You know, there was just so many. There were so many things, and I do still think of it as like a well, that was a great time. But I don't know if that's just because I was, oh, it was good, or because I was just a child. Right, because um, that, that's the very time that Mikey is saying was kind of bad. It's kind of rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't say it was rubbish. I didn't say it was rubbish. I mean, I, I, no, used, I look back on that. Yeah, look back on that. It's great days. But when, when I really scrutinize it, and that's, and that's the question I'm asking, what really all that's cracked up to be? I mean, there were a lot of things we, that were bad about decade, but I was just a little bit maybe too innocent, I didn't have the capacity to understand. I mean, this is what's the height of the Cold War, and especially the 80s, right, Cam? So... Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, I, I can't help thinking in my life, I don't know, it's a strange feeling I have that, that it's a sort of like a, a, a fluke of nature, some sort of strange coincidence that I happened to be born when I was, as opposed to any other given time. And um, I think all, all times are pretty good or pretty bad. I, I, but it's how you enjoyed it. I enjoyed, actually, my 70s and... Mm. 1970s and my 1980s very much so uh i squeeze so, the most out of it and um so uh, mm. so i i see it as an, an enjoyable time can i ask a question um this comes up loads with you know parents or our our family family members where was it really colder? Was it really not this hot back in the 70s? <laughs> is that true? Is that just a lie I've been told? I, think I know it climate change is real. I think it was. I think it was. What do you think, Mikey? In Malaysia, was it cooler, the temperature? Honestly, it just felt the same. It was hot back then. It's, it's hot <laughs> now. It feels less hot now because I've got air conditioning. 
And that's something we didn't have in the 70s or, or really the 80s, unless well, you want to sit in your own parents' car. <laughs> I, so in conclusion then, Mikey, tell us, what, how, where, do you, where do you fall on this? Was it all that it was cracked up to be, the good old days? Looking back at it, not really. I think it was just a, it's just a phase in time and it's a function of naivety and just use. There were some great things about that time and, you know, the fact that I could run around uh, carefree and that's only because my parents took the burden on their shoulders and foot the bill, basically. I, uh, and I think that's the key thing. The yeah, I think, that, part. I think actually that's the one thing that probably separates you and I, Mikey, from, from subsequent generations is that we had so much kind of personal freedom on, on the streets to be able to just venture off and then come back mm. home that 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 would be something different so uh, and in conclusion julian would you would you trade your decades for our decades or were you quite happy with your time i, I, I just want to say trade. by the way my, my decades had david bowie all right off you go <laughs> yeah you had more decades by the way Cam, sort of <laughs> yeah. compared to julian got pts in mine so i'm fine <laughs> um well uh, i trade now you always kind of think, is it always going to be this bad or is it always going to be this many bad things happening at once all around the world all the time forever and it'll only get worse and only more more suffering all the time? Um, I know mm. that that's accessed information and um, being able to learn all of this information at lightning speed, but I would I would give that up. I don't I know I don't know like you said it, it is naivety. I don't know if that it's that if that's a dumb choice, but I do miss the fact when I would learn news six hours later because that's when cnn put it out you know mm. i i don't know i would prefer that yeah i have the internet i like i'm speaking to you guys i haven't seen you guys in like two years and i'm speaking to you guys like that's great i'm cool that's, with that you're you're absolutely right you're absolutely right mm, and, and i know i don't miss the the one news program on tv3 at eight o'clock or whatever it was mm -hmm. I, can't, I can't even remember what it was now uh, okay so it's it it was neither that bad or that good but i had a good time so i've, I've got no complaints um, I want to move on to uh, topic number two, which is about the Colombian exchange, uh, which is not um, anything to do with Pablo Escobar and cocaine. Uh, so when um, Christopher Columbus went off to, quote unquote, discover the Americas, he began an epoch. So everything that happened before the time that he turned up is called pre-Columbian and everything post is post-Columbian or Colombian. So when he arrived there, a movement of uh, foods and goods went from the Americas to the rest of the world and vice versa. So a lot of the things that we actually, especially in Southeast Asia, considered to be complete staples did not arrive in this neck of the woods until um, at the very earliest, the year 1500 and uh, or later. But a few things would be chilies, potato, tomatoes, the frangipani tree, syphilis, <laughs> if you're interested. <laughs> and... Uh, these are some of the most notable ones that I think of in, in Asian cuisine. It's really hard to imagine chilies not being once upon a time eaten by forebears. Going going in the other direction to the Americas, they were very lucky to get things like um, European people, uh, horses, wheat, and uh, a whole host of pathogens, smallpox, chickenpox, measles, that killed like 95% of them. So all those out there who, who advocate for herd immunity, Yes, uh, the South Americans, they did get herd immunity from smallpox, but that was after like 95% of them were dead. So uh, herd immunity is great. Uh, but also uh, another thing they received were slaves from Africa. Mm. 
And with these Africans went certain other goods that we in Southeast Asia might consider to be kind of staples here as well, but I'm not quite sure how they got here. So to the Americas went rice. Uh, rice was domesticated first in China, long time ago, like over 10,000 years ago, and then subsequently independently um, domesticated in West Africa. It's a slightly different grain. Uh, it's described mm. as being nuttier. I think it's a bit fatter and shorter. Uh, mm. That grain went to the Americas. And for instance, uh, South Carolina became one of the biggest producers of rice in the world. And um, okra. Okra is something, or a lady's finger, bindi, is something which we think of as being quintessentially, well, Asian, um, mm. Indian. That was actually probably went from South Africa, South West Africa, uh, perhaps Ethiopia, perhaps India. And uh, yams. I, you know, yams turn up in Chinese cuisine. I think it's maybe Hakka food, like yam basket, for instance. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah that, with pork. Yeah, that, that, the yam uh, originally came from West Africa. Not quite sure how it made its way all the way over to Southeast Asia. Mm. Yeah, interesting journey that would have been. So many of the things. Uh, one very important thing that we don't eat anymore, <laughs> silver. Silver exploded out of the Americas and really had an impact on our history, our economics, in a way that is now really quite hard to understand because there was always an absence of silver in the Southeast Asian economies and the trading networks, but people liked to trade in silver. Suddenly you had a huge amount of silver from uh, Peru bursting onto the scene and, and it, it just it sort of like messed things up. As well, of course, as um, Spanish people or Portuguese people messing things up. So I, I find it fascinating that, that, that these things weren't always here and then just sort of arrived one day and then somebody... I don't know, in Malacca, picked up a chili, chomped into it and went, ouch, that's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how it happened. So, uh, guys, I mean, what do you, I don't know. I, I, it's maybe less a topic of conversation, uh, uh, discussion than just a, something that I find very interesting. But, uh, Mikey, you, uh, you know economics. Do you have any? Uh... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that it actually started with Christopher Columbus. I mean, trade has always been there since the dawn of time. But this would be what well, would have sort of the epoch where globalization could arguably have kind of started, you know, in a sense. But I want to ask you, Cam, uh, talk about transfer of goods from the new world to the old and the old to the new. It seems that it's asymmetrical in terms of benefits. The old world benefited from these new crops. The old world didn't benefit so much. In fact, they, they got the short end of the stick, so to speak, in terms of, uh, you know, getting diseases and uh, another negative factors. Would you agree with that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, not so I'm not, I'm not South American or anything, but uh, yeah. it does seem to be like that, doesn't it? It's so not so much there... an exchange rather than a let's take yeah. one. Left it, yeah. So it's not quite an exchange, is it? Uh, well, is I, I, anything I, the new world got that was positive? But, well, uh, depends. I mean, depends how you, from where, where you view things. Uh, mm. I mean, there might be people out there who say Catholicism, yay. You're, I think you're giving a sort of a, a qualitative uh, emotional judgment on the word exchange uh, mm. as opposed to just simply just a, a fact. Uh, Julian, I mean, uh, could you imagine a world before chilies and um, tomatoes <laughs> and potatoes? Um, I, I didn't know much about this. Um, one thing that I don't know too much about, I do want to learn a lot more of and can please correct me if this isn't part of the Colombian exchange. But um, one thing that I, I've read a bit about is about how when the Europeans moved to the New World, they completely destroyed um, traditional Native American 
farming techniques. They took those techniques and moved it over and brought them over to Europe. But then at the same time, completely decimated a lot of crops, ruined a lot of traditional um, native crops because of well, yield, I guess, improving yield. I think uh, there are a lot of groups now trying to you know, bring that back. But essentially, the, the, the taking of that land and removing the, those practices that have to be retaught now, I think, I hope is related to this. I think that's... Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's no coincidence that where, where they landed, um, well, it happened to be called New England. Uh, no, mm. no, they called it New England because you know, they wanted to create a New England. But I mean, I'm not, I'm not from that neck of the woods and my, my understanding of that history is not that strong. But one thing that's often underestimated is that the, the, the simple diseases that these uh, Europeans took with them absolutely wiped out the peoples of that land. The Mississippi Valley is the, the most fertile part of the Americas, and there was a really thriving and sophisticated civilization in that valley, which just died. And so when Europeans, because their diseases had gone ahead of them, when they arrived there in numbers, they found the Mississippi Valley empty and said, well, these Indians are so damn stupid. Why aren't they living here? Well, they had been living there, but they were now all dead. Yeah, so the, by the time that they were filling in these lands, these, a lot of the lands were, were empty already. Just off the things that you listed earlier that were, you know, the, the, the crops that were brought over, are they not staples anymore? You know, things like potatoes were brought over, but they're not even primarily grown there anymore in America, or that they're not the largest consumer, or like, I think cassava or tapioca, they brought it over to Asia. It's huge in Asia mm. and uh, different African nations and in their diet and culturally, but not so much in America anymore. Is that true? I'm, I'm sure some of those are true. I'm sure. Uh, you know, taste change. Also availability changes. Say the Spanish were there and they decided to prioritize the growing of one crop as opposed to another. Uh, but potatoes are still certainly grown in North America. Mm. But, but, but the cocoa, chocolate, is now grown heavily in West Africa, as opposed to Mexico, where people eat chocolate in a different way. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it came from, oh, by the way, yeah, chocolate also came from Mexico. <laughs> we must move on, though. Um, but, yeah, so that's the Colombian Exchange, something which I, I often think about. Um, <laughs> and so should you. So, but in a moment, uh, we're going we're gonna to be talking about um, history in the movies uh, here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with myself, Cam Rusland, Julian Yup, and Mikey Gong. And now, uh, Julian, learning history through the movies. Yeah, I'm sure everyone does it. I'm sure the version that we know of a lot of events for a lot of, for, for most people, is probably the version that we've watched in a film. Um, I was watching The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward, Robert Ford over the weekend uh, with Brad Pitt and Casey Affleck. And so I tend to do this. I, I will know of a figure or I know of an event like the Colombian exchange, but I, I won't know anything about it. And in order to find out more, I don't go looking for a documentary or I'll read the Wikipedia page, but how much can they tell you? You know, I immediately try to look for a dramatized, uh, maybe a lot of them fictionalized versions of these events. And that's how I learn about, uh, that's, my, that's my preferred way. I know it's not the perfect way, but that's my preferred way of learning about events or historical figures. I know this obviously opens up a lot of issues um, with um, accuracy, with, um, you know, uh, things like whitewashing, things like white savior tropes that especially early, early Hollywood like to inject into these stories just to make them more relatable to an American audience. Historical films 
biographies or not, or even just events, um, they take a very specific part of that history from, and, and they close that chapter when the credits end and that ends there. So much happens after that. So much more happens outside of that sphere of the cast and crew of the, on that page. I know that. I know that that can cause a lot of, you know, discrepancies in the actual events that actually do, but I do enjoy it a lot. I like that you can watch, um, I think, especially modern Hollywood or modern modern blockbuster films that, you know, it's very popular at the last decade, maybe last two decades, um, doing movies about um, the war. I mean, the war has always been popular, um, popular, especially World War II, just because it's got so much um, reach. Um, I like the fact that you can watch, you know, you could watch one film where it's about one very small event in one very small area in Europe. And then you can watch another film when you're, talk, when you're looking at the lives of soldier wives in, at home, back at home while they're thinking of like, you know, their friends. I like that you can see these little pockets and, together, and you put them together and you can see this whole picture of what you can think, what, you, what Hollywood tells you what. Are there any, any particular movies though that you can quote that have excited uh, an interest or, or, or you feel like got given you an understanding in a particular time and place i think it's probably not the best version just because a lot of it's not a film but hamilton hamilton is i think so it's such a dry topic i'm sorry i'm sorry to cam if you like it very much i think the the topic of hamilton is so boring well it bores the um, hell out of me yeah I'd, oh thank it's god it's an astoundingly <laughs> boring period of history <laughs> <laughs> and um, hamilton i think you know just the creation of america i don't care i don't um, care. i think yeah, I think it's a great way to introduce that to people, and it did make me want to learn more. I read the biography; it was it was it was awful, so it doesn't matter. The other times would be, you know, Tudor times. I think Tudor times are awful. I learned that in school. I hated it. Um, but um, I, nothing's coming to mind at the moment. But but the, the the British do a lot of Tudor dramas, so it could be it yeah. could be one of any number of things. Yeah. Uh, well, Mikey, can I ask you? Are you uh, are you a uh, learning history through movies kind of guy? Um, I love history, uh, but I generally learn history through books. No, and, and it's not to say I don't like movies. I love historical movies of what I call period movies, but I have a bit of a problem with them as much as I like them. They sometimes don't give the full context and that's missing. For example, one of my favorite movies, um, Glory, which deals with uh, the first mm. black uh, infantry regiment um, in, in the United States during the Civil War. It's a great movie full of drama, uh, pathos, um, everything. Uh, there's only one problem. It doesn't give you the context or the background behind the Civil War. It talks a little bit about discrimination, and that's it. And it's all basically about a regiment going off to war and you know and winning glory, uh, you know, for themselves. Well, I just think I mean I, I've just finished reading a thousand-page book on uh, on the context behind the Civil War. It's very long. There's a lot of context. You can't possibly <laughs> exactly. And I feel it's worth plugging through the pain and and uh, you know of of going through that and having the patience to actually go through uh, you know all these uh, confusing and elements and drawing it all all together. Mm. But the movie Glory is very um, it's really good. And it, I think one of the things it, about the yeah. glory does, uh, the, the, the kind of movies that perhaps you're talking about, Julian, is they, they capture the imagination, they open a window mm. into a time you hadn't really thought about, and then they fill it so mm. completely that it, it feels so peopled um, by real people wearing real clothes, um, mm. walking like humans and, <laughs> and being. And I, I think Glory mm. did that very well. There's another movie that, that, that and I was captured my, my interest a few years ago. It was called 
Bell. Uh, it's about an, an, a real character called Dido Elizabeth Bell, uh, a mixed race, and uh, I think she was the illegitimate daughter of a, of a Royal Navy captain, and she was actually uh, adopted by his brother, in other words, her uncle, and brought up in an upper-class British family, something very unusual for that time and, and period. But uh, if you ask me, did I learn anything about history at that stage from the movie? Uh, actually, a lot and, and quite a bit. And it gave me snapshots of um, the debate over abolition, the abolition of slavery. Uh, um, and it gave a little bit more cultural nu- and nuance on the, on the culture of the time. But uh, again, it goes back to what I was saying. It's still a snapshot, maybe a wider scope, but still limited. I do like when, um, like, like Bell. Bell's a, Bell's a great example, I think, um, because it is set against the backdrop of um, the Tong ship disaster, where mm. hundreds of slaves brought, being brought over to the UK. The ship had, was um, intentionally sunken because um, it was cheaper to sink the ship than to bring over injured or diseased um, slaves because of the terrible conditions on the ship, which led to the... Um, uh, abolition of slavery. So having that personal story of having Belle, a woman in high society dealing with mixed race, uh, with, with her mixed race heritage, um, while being the first and only mixed race person um, in this very, obviously very white English court um, is, is incredibly interesting, but it ends so neatly. You know, we mm. don't find out what happens after that. We don't look at the other hundred, the two, what, another 200 years, another hundred years of um, oppression or racism that any any mixed race or black person in America uh, in the UK had to go through, or in, in Europe. Uh, another good example would be Ellen Turing in The Imitation Game hmm. a few years ago. I love I that think film. Alone. It's a it's 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 a great film, and I think. Um, but the the thing with the film, and I think this is a good part of this film coming out, is that a lot of people had, who maybe had not. Maybe you've heard of Alan Turing. Maybe you, obviously you don't know who he was as a person. We would never, we will never know. But because that movie came out, a lot of people who did actually know him and worked with him um, came out to say, "Well, no, that I don't think this depiction is right." Mm-hmm. Alan Turing was a happy, very involved. He was very involved with this community. He had a um, a huge. He had he had many lovers. He had a great he had a great life. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe. I, I mean, it was wartime. I don't know how great that would have been. But, um, you know, in the movie, it, does, it shows how he fell in love with one person and it ruined his entire life and, and drove him to, to depression. And that can happen. So there's an interesting issue about accuracy, Julian. So why was he depicted that way? Why, why, why was there that sort of, you know, feeling of oppression and persecution that, you know, that was at, so at odds with the reality, which I'm glad you brought up? Uh, I think especially with Alan Turing being the genius that he was, I think there's um, you know, something like, you know, like A Beautiful Mind or, or like mm. Sherlock, the, the BBC Sherlock, the the obsession with having to make these, these, these brilliant people, these very normal, brilliant people incredibly special. And that's their appeal. And I don't like, you know, obviously that's not mm. um, necessary. Um, the film depicts him to be, they don't explicitly say it, being someone on the autistic spectrum, which mm. he, which was never proven, of course. You know, yeah. it's things like this adding that we don't we don't need to, that don't need to be added. Yeah, it, it's reinforcing a, a current um, stereotype, a current cliche. You know, yeah. the, the, the mad scientist is the this savant. Um, mm. 
I mean, I I love a good historical movie, and a lot of them get me very angry. Uh, the the recent um, Churchill movie, Worst Hours, what's it called? Finest Hours, Darkest, Darkest Hours, Finest Hours, yeah, Darkest, heap of trash that one. But um, <laughs> oh, I mean, the the the, the it, it was a pernicious movie selling the idea of cuddly Winston. Um, he's so cuddly and nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was he was a, he was a, he was. Yeah, but there was much more to him than that. <laughs> it wasn't that mm-hmm. nice. But, um, but also historical inaccuracy when it fits um, <clears throat> movie filmmaking tropes. Uh, there's one scene in the movie Lincoln, that Steven Spielberg, great filmmaker, um, mm-hmm. where Abraham Lincoln is, he's the president of the United States, and he's talking to some black soldiers. And one of the soldiers then starts quoting the Gettysburg Address. And whilst he's uh, quote reciting the Gettysburg Address. He turns away from Lincoln, walks away. And then this is a movie trope, which is a a movie technique where you have a person in the background who's looking at the camera and a person in the foreground who's also looking at the camera. But in reality, they're not actually looking at each other. Mm. Um, And it, to me, was inconceivable that uh, a soldier, a black man who had been recently freed from slavery, would have the, the wherewithal, the cheek to turn away from the president of the United States, walk away whilst talking. It's just, mm. I mean, in reality, it's such a rude maneuver. In the movies, it mm. works. <laughs> 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 so things like that kind of get me. Um, we must move on, that... though. But but you mentioned the movie, Bell. Are there any movies, uh, Julian, that you'd like to uh, send us toward that have gotten you excited? I love Jackie. I think Jackie is a great... A great example. I don't know how accurate it is, of course, but um, it was based off of um, first-hand accounts. Um, it um, it deals with the uh, with how uh, Jackie Onassis, Jackie Kennedy, dealt with um, the assassination um, that came out a few years ago. And the trailer just came out yesterday for Spencer, which is by the same director, Pablo Larraín, about Diana Spencer, a lost few weeks or months of her life, or like. I think that that's pretty interesting. But that will be coming out at the end of the year. Okay. Uh, Well, we we must move on. And so we move on now to um, the final part of the show, recommendations, where we recommend something that we might think of be of interest. And Mikey goes first. Right. I'd like to recommend a book. It's called Capitalism in America, A History uh, by Alan Greenspan and Adrian Goodrich. That's keeping in, uh, you know, in step with our history theme for this show. It's actually a really uh, grand sweeping saga about uh, how how capitalism developed in America. And it's not exactly what you may think it is. It's not all about flash cars, stock markets and, you know, and, uh, you know, and and invest in, you know, and retail investors on Robin Hood. (laughs) It's a lot more complicated. It has a a lot of philosophical underpinnings, uh, even religious overtones as to uh, how the current uh, system in the U.S. developed, you know, and, and and it also explains the difference between laissez-faire and capitalism. Please don't ask me to do it on there. <laughs> and it's it, on brand for Mikey. Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? And, it? and it's a riveting read, is it? It's an absolutely riveting read. It's not easy, and it goes back to the thing about patience. Uh, there are a few graphs and a few numbers, but also lots of good old nice black and white photos of the Carnegies and, you know, old America. I don't know whether that appeals to, uh, to either of you. 
Does I'm, it? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Is there a, mo- is there a movie about it? Or is it- <laughs> I, yeah, I knew Julian was going to say that. <laughs> I'm sure there is somewhere. If not, I'll make one for you. How about that, Julian? Thank you. Well, I mean, a good movie on capitalism in America would be The Godfather, I guess. That's actually not a... Hmm. What's your Godfather Part 2? You've seen Godfather and Godfather Part 2, haven't you, Julian? Haven't yeah, you? Haven't I'm just you? wondering. Oh. I haven't read Mikey's book, you see. No, I'm, I'm not... <laughs> You read it, Mikey, and you tell me all about it when you're done. Uh, <laughs> Julian's trying to wonder how Sonny Corleone is dying in a hail of bullets. Has, <laughs> he, got, has he got that? Has he, <laughs> if he's got that scene. No, he doesn't. You're going to have to plug through it. It's not exactly oh. that kind of book. Okay, Capitalism in, in America by Alan Greenspan. A, a history. A history. Emphasis on the word a history. A history uh, by Alan Greenspan and some other guy. Yeah, um, some other guy. Okay, cool. Uh, my recommendation is, uh, in this episode, we've, we've actually spoken quite a lot about the Americas and about um, slavery. And uh, so my recommendation actually brings all these together. It's, it's a documentary that a friend of mine recommended to me on Netflix. It's called High on the Hog. And it is about African-American foods and cuisine right, and yeah. the history of uh, and where many of the ingredients came from, how and many of them came from West Africa, and how they were then used in the Americas by uh, enslaved people and, and how they were able to grow them, where they could grow them, how they substituted them when they... So, for instance, they could you couldn't grow yams in the Americas, but yams are a huge part of West African food, and so it was substituted with um, sweet potato, which uh, in America is often called yams, but it's not. Um and indeed, for instance, uh, a totally different thing, but um, there, there are Malays, as it were, in uh, South Africa. Uh, mm. They eat uh, sambal. They have a thing called sambal. Cape, uh, Cape Malays. Cape Malays, yeah. yeah. And they, they eat sambal. But so many of the ingredients that are involved in the sambal from this neck of the woods are not available there. So it, mm. it, it was substituted with a bit of this and a bit of that. And so it, now it's, it's, it tastes completely different. It's its, its own thing. So, um, so high on the hog, is um it's really good it's it's a quiet documentary and um it's um it it it's we are led through it by um a chef who is mm. who is following the journey of african american food and uh, i i'm really it's very good very good so that's my i've seen it i like it oh yeah oh cool okay yeah. i'll check that out it has a different pace from other documentaries I've watched, really. I, I feel. It's, it's a little bit like a travelogue slash cooking program a la Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, yeah, slightly Bourdain-y. Um, it's in that kind of vein, mm. less brash, as it were. I mean, mm. I, Bourdain's brashness was something I enjoyed, but it's, it's, it's not that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Julian, what's your recommendation? Mm, not in keeping with today's theme, but set in America, is... Um, a new series that's, I think, uh, just come out there on episode four at the moment. It's a weekly series called Reservation Dogs. It is on FX, which is on Hulu. I won't tell you how to get it um, because you know. Um, it follows four teenagers as they grow up in this dead, it, no, it's not deadbeat, but it's, it's pretty much dead, you know. It's like a town forgotten by America. It's this tiny town. I'm not sure if they actually call it a reservation in the, in the show, um, but these four teenagers, they're all indigenous native american they have to do crime and steal and and cheat and find ways to get money so that they can move out of of ohio where they're where they are to move to california and it is written by uh sterling Har- hargo 
and Taika Waititi. So it's got the kind of um, just just offbeat humor, um, the visual humor, and the and the script is is all great. Very similar to um, what we do in the shadows. If anyone likes mm. that, you'll like this for sure. Um, and I think the entire writing and directing crew are Indigenous Native American, and I think that. Well, okay, it's in keeping with today's theme. I think there's so much that we know or that we think we know or that we've, put, we've been told to know about um, Native American culture. So much of that isn't modern Native American culture. It's not written by the people who actually are and actually live in it. This is, I think, I mean, it's obviously not going to be like, well, you know, our ancestors, it's none of that. It is actually, mm. it's just about, it's a bunch of kids who still respect their culture and they're still surrounded by it. It's, I think, um, mm. I, th I think, I, I love these kids. I think it's a bit slow if, you, if, if you're just starting, but um, I, I'm, I'm so hooked because these kids are amazing. Cool. That sounds really good. Um, again, the name? Reservation Dogs. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I, I will check that out. So uh, with that, we come to the end of this week's show. And um, only remains for me now to thank our guests, uh, Mikey Gong. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Julian. Thank you. And uh, Julian Yap. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mikey. Thank you, Ken. And uh, who knows? Maybe the three of us will meet in, uh, in actual, like, human 3D dimensions. I don't know how long it's going to be. In a better time. In a better the, time. The, the, new, the new good days. A new world, a new hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. And uh, please join us next week. Another, another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.